Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. friends who listen to Future Primitive. Um, today, I, I'm deeply happy to be on the phone with Christopher Bate. He is a professor of religious studies at Youngstown State University. He is an award-winning teacher, international speaker, an author of The Living Classroom, Dark Night, Early Dawn, and Life Cycles. He has written articles for Dialectica and the Journal of Scientific Study of Religion and has received YSU's Distinguished Professor Award for Teaching and Research. Chris's work explores the deepest dimensions of human psychology, including collective consciousness, reincarnation, theory, and philosophical implications of transpersonal states of awareness. He has degrees from the University of Notre Dame, Cambridge University, and Brown University. So, Chris, this morning I was listening to a talk that you gave at an IONS conference mm. shortly, about, I think, 17 months before the 2001 uh, catastrophe of the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And it was eerie to me how uh, how how actual and present um the, the the talk was about actually you were saying that um we are going to go through very difficult times yes and so i just wanted to get a little bit of your perspective of how do you see the last 13 years in terms of consciousness uh, well there are a number of levels of, of that I'm attracted to respond to your question, but the one I have, the one that is my true only um, source, the core strength for it is to speak of it in the context of my own experiences in visionary states of consciousness, specifically in LSD-generated states of consciousness using the protocols that Stan Groff and others have developed to, to hold that energy and to let it reach very intense burn-through proportions and to follow that cascade of opening through the cycles of death, rebirth, and then dropping into, you know, what do you want to call it, the womb of the universe, the womb mm. of the cosmos, the deep psyche. So my experience is the only way I can respond to the kind of intuitions that I have or where humanity is and what's happening and where we're going really comes out of those visionary experiences. It's 
it's uh, books come after, you know, they kind of help, but the visionary experience is primary. And, of course, experiences are deeply uh, flawed and imperfect. So, you know, it has its built-in limitations. But my experience is that, at least for me, when the walls of my individual, I mean, I'm oversimplifying some, but, but of course, but when the walls of my individual self fell away, when one's awareness falls into the underlying stream of the flow of life, and one of the things that happens is one falls into the collective mind. When your individual mind pops, then one just doesn't pop into, you know, void consciousness, but one falls into the deeper matrix, the deeper web of the life wave that you are. Mm-hmm. And so it means, for me, it means falling into the human mind and, and, and taking on human history as my history. And then if you fall deeper, one falls beyond the human mind into some deeper matrix of earth consciousness or galaxy consciousness or for me, it moves then into the more purely spiritualized dimensions of consciousness. So, from that context, from the context of what I discovered was my own individual struggles in life were actually part and parcel of a deeper struggle that was taking place. And my own death-rebirth process and, uh, and the challenges that were embedded in my life when those kind of exploded, I began to understand them and see them as symptomatic of, part and parcel of a, a much deeper convulsion, a wave that was moving through history, mm-hmm. a wave of an evolutionary crescendo, a wave truly of the, what the ancients called the Kali Yuga, the time of intense destructuring, purification, uh, breaking apart of forms. And after many years, you know, really 15 years of working with these states, I, I went through many kind of variations of trans-temple experience. And one particular series of experiences, uh, it was as if it took me into humanity's future. It took me into the, into the very depth of the throes of the collective death rebirth of the human species. Yes. It was like I was, a metaphor would be standing in a thunderstorm where every drop is a life and experiencing the entire thunderstorm all at once, all the lives, all humanity, all at once, going through an agonizing death process. And at the peak throes of it, truly thinking, as a group, thinking this was it, we were dying, and the entire species was dying. And it was as if a hurricane had overtaken a Pacific island and just was tearing everything away. Mm-hmm. And then the peak passed, the peak of the storm passed, and there were survivors. There were beings who survived. And as they began to reassemble themselves, suddenly springing out of their hearts were qualities of consciousness and qualities of of heart and qualities of mind 
that had been unleashed in the fire of this terrible storm that, that, that had stormed through on us. And broken families reassembled into new families, old social forms having been broken away, uh, new social forms attuned to a new consciousness, a new uh, common denominator, collective consciousness, Carl Jung called it, a new template of consciousness kind of had been released and uh, sprung forth in this process. And that's when I, I, like so many others, what I was seeing is echoed in what so many others are seeing and giving voice to, that we are in a death-rebirth process. We are giving birth. Mm -hmm. We feel it, that we are giving birth to something profound in human history. And that there is a correlation between what's taking place inside and what's taking place socially, culturally, historically. That there's something at a planetary level, a crisis where we either evolve or die. And there is a corresponding inner transformation that's taking place. A bursting forth of a new identity. I personally have paid more attention in my work to the individual breaking forward, what's coming forward, understanding that. and But I see it as part and parcel of a larger collective social cultural process. Now, I don't have any insights into the particulars. You know, it's not like I don't haven't seen this, that, or the other particulars like some people have seen. I just the level at which I have tapped into this is at a much deeper evolutionary level, where it's the, the deep structure of the pivots taking place, the archetypal level, that level of the universe that holds the form of the human species, that held the form of Homo erectus, that held the early and all the earlier forms, holds that form. It's at the, that level of, of experiencing an entire species as an integrated manifestation of a particular uh, manifestation of consciousness in a form. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happening is we are, we are bursting forward. Something is bursting through us, taking us beyond sapiens sapiens. Because sapiens sapiens culminates in an exquisite individual rational ego. And now we're take, being taken beyond that in a way which preserves that, but explodes us back into the something people conceptualize in different ways, the, the basic fundamental web of life, the coherent wholeness of life, so that that sacred individuality which has been forged over these past 5,000 years of patriarchal culture comes alive within a renewed matrix of, the, in a sense, you might say the the mother lineage, the mother web, mm -hmm. uh, and we move forward. So I, my sense is that this is the century of crisis, and that my gut instinct tells me that, but also all the ecologists are telling us this, and all the cultural anthropologists and all the people who are truly careful observers of our time in history. We're coming to the absolute choice point for the survival of our species. And I think the 21st century is that century, and so mm -hmm. the fire is heating up. So I know from my own 
psychedelic experience, which um, I consider, I mean, I, I consider LSD a uh, spiritual medicine. And yes. I personally am very grateful uh, for the experience. Um, I'll say this for the forces that be, I don't recommend it for anybody. But I know Absolutely. that, yes. It's a sacred work and it's hard work. Very, it's very. not for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. But, but I know that being of my generation, I stumbled into this experience. Mm -hmm. Literally stumbled, bumbled into it. Mm -hmm. And I know that at the, at the onset, um, my my character was totally a character of separation. Mm -hmm. I saw everything as separated, and I suffered from extreme loneliness mm -hmm. about that. And I feel that today, 40 years later, um, I feel a sense of belonging. I feel mm -hmm. exactly... Uh, I, I feel more or less in harmony with everything around me. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to sort of, rather than say zero in, quantum in on your psychedelic experience, especially since you will be beginning to write a book about this. And I'd love to get your perspective after many years. to give a context because I'm really in the middle of this book writing process or in the beginning early stages of this book writing process and it's, I'm finding it much tougher going than I was expecting to sort of know where to start and how to tell the story so here's my background I mean I didn't even enter into the psychedelic arena until so 10 years after it had become illegal so kind of it, it was after the whole after timothy's era after ram das's era mm -hmm. you know after the early years when the door closed in the late 60s and i came along in 78 out of graduate school 10 years later so everything had kind of calmed down some then that's when i went through the door and uh I went through thinking that this was just going to be, I was doing this in order to uh, accelerate the, uh, the spiritual process leading to enlightenment. I mean, that was my goal, kind of to be a better person, to be a happier, older person, and it would be nice if enlightenment was in there somewhere. Yeah. And uh, so it was all about, you know, burning off karma and, and, you know, and really clearing the lens and getting down to it. And I began this, what eventually became a 20-year use of psychedelics in a very conscientious kind of Grothian manner. But uh, I, for reasons that were partly circumstantial, largely circumstantial, and probably not very wise, I chose a very high-dose regimen. So I really pushed the envelope in an extreme manner for 20 years. And, uh, you know, I've, I'm the most straight person you could imagine. I mean, I've, <laughs> you know, I've 
make my mortgage payments and I look like an accountant. I've been teaching at the university for 30 years and I, my life is a Monday to Friday kind of life. And on the outside, I look completely, you know, certified citizen. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, on the inside, I was blasting myself through different dimensional realities in the universe. And I was doing it not as a therapist, because I really wasn't interested primarily therapeutically, but I was a philosopher. I wanted to understand the universe. I wanted to understand whether or not there was a God. I wanted to understand the larger fabric of things. And the journey ended up being the most absolutely soul-satisfying return home. Mm-hmm. And just absolutely healing all the ancient wounds of separation, and eventually bringing me back to places, to realities that I knew I had not been back to for billions and billions of years, dimensions of time beyond reckoning. But. I found later, and, and I did this for 20 years, and I stopped in 99. So it was 79 to 99, kind of like my second Saturn return work from the time I began teaching, pretty much till it's kind of late in my career. And then I found it took five years for my physiological and subtle energy system to finish calming down. Mm-hmm. There was that much energy that had been kind of generated in the work. And it took 10 years for the system to find its complete center of equilibrium, in a way, the new equilibrium. Yes. Um, and I'm still, the question you ask, I'm still in the process of answering in terms of the, the ram, how it left me, what it did to me. Because, as you know, these are things that unfold very slowly over time. Uh, Some of the changes, the things that one touches, it takes, I used to think it'd take years, decades. Now I think it actually may take lifetimes. Yes. Oh. No, lifetimes. Because when you're taking the soul in such deep, deep places, you're affecting the whole trajectory of your incarnational story. So I, I don't know the full ramifications of what I've done, of what I did. I truly don't. Uh, but I have a better appreciation now for some of the wear and care of the process. And I don't mean, I mean really the sort of physical, subtle energy, chi level wear and tear, and some of the wear and tear on relationships. So that the more distance I've gotten on the whole phenomenon, the whole, my experience, the more I think, that was not wise, don't do it that way. (laughs) Uh There's a better way to do it. You don't have to push a system so hard. You can take the layers off more gently. You can balance the LSD with the organic, in some ways, softer psychedelics, you know. Uh, I learned a lot of things. I wish I knew then what I know now, you know, about the process. Yes. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Well, 
these states, the more they increased in their intensity, the more I had, I, I tried to strengthen, I did strengthen my daily spiritual practice. The, the relationship I, I developed in my thinking was the deeper you're going into a non-ordinary state, the stronger your daily practice has to be because there is such a huge energy flux when you move into deep non-ordinary states that if you take an ordinary body and an ordinary subtle energy system into those states, it's very, very difficult. That's what creates the kriyas, throws you into the convulsions. Because deep states of consciousness, pure states of consciousness, the purer the state of consciousness, the larger, deeper the state of consciousness, the higher energy it is. And so just managing the energy dynamics, you know, eventually became a real issue for me. So a lot of practice. And then about 15 years into the process is when I started being introduced to Vajrayana Buddhist practice. And I began to do some of the, the archetypal deity practices. And I found that to be very helpful. And I, what I understood to be happening was using these archetypal forms in between sessions gave some place for this energy to run. It allowed a certain energy that was building up in me to run. So I began to experiment with integrating temp- shamanic work, what I call my shamanic work. You mm-hmm. know, you mm-hmm. do the temporary work, which I was doing about five times a year. Okay, that, and you know, that's very, in many circles, that would be considered very restrained. But five times a year was all that I could manage. Right, right. Uh, and I think it, it, it changes your subtle energy system. It changes, you know, when you're, you know what I wasn't prepared for in the whole process, which caught me by surprise as time went on. Yes. And this comes from someone who doesn't live in the Bay Area or doesn't live in San Francisco, doesn't live where there are more like-minded people uh-huh. around. I live in Ohio, and you know, this is where my work has been. But I wasn't prepared for the loneliness. I hadn't anticipated that. I didn't see it coming. And it's, it's the loneliness that uh, Don Juan in Carlos Castaneda's book refers to when he's referring to his his shamanic friend. And he says, the world is only real when I'm with him. And it's like, once you go down the deep psychedelic path, you enter a reality that only people who have gone down this path in some deep way, that's the only people who can, who really understand. Mm -hmm. You can share something. And so most people who are living ordinary lives, they're wonderful and they're beautiful, Mm. but the elements of that ordinary life aren't yours anymore. And so in some sense, you're there, but your heart isn't there. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. So have you found uh, travelers with whom you can share your heart about this? I have. Uh, I, I have. Uh, 
have been relatively few and far between. It just hasn't, it's been something about my karma or whatever that has tended to give me kind of a monastic lifestyle in a way in this respect. So when I, but when I come to the Bay Area, when I, when I teach at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and I'm in that kind of milieu when I was working at uh, the IONS at the Institute of Nautic Sciences and, and in that kind of environment, there were many kindred souls, you know, in that world. Yes, yes. Uh, but I seem to be kind of called to spend a lot of time in private and distill something which I think will take a written form more than a social form. I don't know. I'm still finding out. And you write beautifully about these experiences. And actually, I personally don't know anybody who speaks um, so so clearly and in such detail of uh, dimensions that are not perceived in in everyday life. Mm, thank you. Yes. Thank you. That's that's what happens when you take a miracle rising into uh, and a Neptune first house into deep non-ordinary states. What I, I really have worked hard at trying to give... I, I, as a matter of practice, I would always record a session within 24 hours of when the session took place. And I would do it very conscientiously and I would replay the music that I used during the session in order to go back into that kind of space but now allowing me to write it down. And many times, I, you know, because these things are so elusive, you're always having to write at the very edges. But I found that with repetition, going back to these spaces again and again and again, things would articulate themselves in clearer, and gradually the, the message was getting clearer, the models were getting clearer. But it would take multiple times, and I, so I kept on trying very hard to be as clear as I possibly could to hold on to it. And uh, so I really appreciate that, you know, yeah. you feel that. Because yes. it's really been a, yes. a, a real labor of love. Oh, yes. So it's interesting because um, you're a deep explorer, a philosopher of consciousness. And I find it very interesting that a few days ago, uh, Obama announced that um, he was going to allocate a hundred million dollars to uh, mapping the brain uh, yeah. in terms of MRIs and all this sort of thing. Yeah, but, I but hope. yeah, yeah. But I have yeah. to share with you that what uh, that reminded me of. It reminded me because the. They were saying that they only saw a very thin, um, thin part of the brain, a very, very thin layer of the brain, and it, it reminded me that we live on a very thin skin of the earth. Yes. But what fascinates me is that what is deeper than the skin. Yes. So I don't know if that. Uh, that challenges you to some thoughts, but I'd like it. Well, you know, our, our, our big hope is that, well, our, our basic, you know, I've lived in universities, and the religion of the universities is that the physical world is the only world that's real. 
And so we know consciousness is tied to the brain, so our religion is that the brain produces consciousness, which is why, of course, we're traumatized to dying, because if the brain goes, then our consciousness should disappear. And there is this beautiful way in which the way the brain pulses, and the way it beats, and the way it works, it, it anchors consciousness. But I think Sheldrake is right, and, and others, that the brain functions as a reducer, a filter of consciousness. It, but consciousness is inherently non-spatial temporal, and the brain focuses it into the experience of embodied consciousness in this particular body. Whether brain research will ever uh, kind of help us see that, I'm sure it will eventually. But right now, our religion is uh, brain produces consciousness in this very reductive, materialist way. I just think that's going to that whole paradigm is in the process of collapsing under its own right. false assumptions. And so I'm not even concerned about challenging it. I, I think that the, um, the world of meditation, the hundreds of thousands of people who are meditating in the world, the consistent uh, advances that are being made in near-death episode research, shamanic research, clearly the, the tide is turning psychedelic research, the, you know, the whole structure. I watch my colleagues at the university, and my sense is that whole structure is really shaking deeply. And, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it, mm -hmm. it, but one of the things I find with psychedelic research, part of what makes it hard to do this book is, I just don't think, uh, I don't think, any of the traditional community is going to be able to uh, take it in. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know what I've come to realize after talking about these ideas in academic context for 30 years is my academic colleagues, they're my friends. You know, we're good friends. We work together. They like me. And even so, when I try to take them in this direction, they can follow me up to a certain point and then they just stop. You know, it's like they just can't go there. They roll their eyes, a little bridge comes down. And I understand. I really do understand because they haven't had the experiences. And I've come to appreciate that for the ideas to have impact, there must be some type of initiation into the reality. Ideas themselves will get stuck in the physical world. Mm -hmm. So now it places with what I've realized that as an author, if I was going to be a philosopher and try to extract some of the philosophical value of these experiences, what I first have to do is initiate people to some degree into the experiences to the, to the degree that an author can. Mm -hmm. You know, and it almost now it turns out that the story of the experience themselves is more valuable than any philosophical extrapolation I might apply. And I'm not used to thinking like that. I mean, my, you know, I've been writing as an academic. Yes. And it's very hard for me to sort of find a different voice that's, that's a much deeper experiential voice. And then, to, and then just to find the space to be able to share something that hopefully will be useful to, to other people. That's the only purpose for writing. Like there's a little, there's a little parable... Uh, once I took a very high dose of LSD in Saint-Tropez uh, by the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. and uh, in the 
in the middle of the journey, I went down and I got a little rowing boat and I started rowing out um, on the sea with the purpose of seeing the sunrise. And the other people came down and they went into a very powerful, extremely powerful powerboat and to go out to see the sunrise. And then uh, their boat broke down. The motor of their boat broke down really close to me. And they threw me a rope and I rowed them back to the harbor. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when I think about this, I think, well, this was 30 years ago, but I think about it as, for me, a teaching on the um, ecological situation at this time. Yes. But it's taken me 30 years to see that and this conversation with you. Mm. Mm. It takes a long time, doesn't it? Yeah. One time, uh, Spirit, towards the end, told me, uh, 20 years in, 20 years out. Wow. And I took that to mean that it would take at least 20 years to extract what was there in the 20 years of work. So it's been 14 years since you physically returned from your exploration. I do do some, you know, shamanic work around the edges, but basically I think of those 20 years as the really intense work. And I, I, that's where I, in 99, I stopped pushing the boundaries. Mm -hmm. I still do psychedelic work to absorb and integrate and, you know, light, light work. But um, that's what I'm really trying to understand and is what happened in those 20 years where it went, what I learned about the universe. Uh, and I, I've had, I, I, I find myself having to create, not, well, not exactly create ideas, but create a language. Yes, that's it. That's what I wanted to ask you most of all is I, I find it difficult to find the language to describe these things. That's yeah. why I told you what sounds like a little stupid story. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you about language and how you feel about um, using language to describe these things. Well, I think ineffability is highly overrated as a, as a sign of mystical experience. You know, if it's ineffable, that's a sign that it's a real mystical experience. And I, I think that if you can't describe where you went, if you get it, I mean, truly, there are experiences where language falls apart, the whole reality of that language goes away. But I think, I think there's a lot that can be said about those realities before language falls short. Mm-hmm. And so I believe in, in trying to push language and, and trying to find It's just trying to find words for your experience. So, it's, but for example, when working at a certain level of reality, what someone like maybe Ken Wilber or Stan would call the subtle level of reality, which mm-hmm. is beyond the psychic level into the collective domain, into the archetypal domain, uh, the deeper fabric. You know, when you're, when you're navigating that territory, you aren't a you. 
I mean, you're no longer a human being because the only citizens of that territory are like deep currents of the deeper fabric, the, you know, the muscle, the sinews, the tissue, mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, which is inherently collective. So your whole frame of reference is not that you're a human being seeing things or having experiences, but you are a different being who is connected by consciousness to what you were when you, as a physical being, your individual consciousness. And so to try to find a way of describing entry into new modalities of experience, new modalities. And then, and then another example would be trying to describe the, the permutations and variations and refinements of light. I find that one of the really challenging things because light is, is so much of that, that reality is light. Mm-hmm. But then I found that there are so many uh, degrees of refinement of light that I had, you have to find new vocabulary or some type of way of, of uh, changing the language to describe the deeper permutations of that reality. And I find that also one of the other things that is really coming as an unexpected kind of challenge for telling the story is uh, uh, knowing what to do with the pain that's involved in this path. You know, the dying part. Yes. You know, the the intense purification part, the hyper-purification and what I found is that this isn't something you go through once. It's not like, you know, you just go through a death rebirth once and then, and then it's all clear sailing. But I discovered that you go through a cycle of dying and being reborn. As you go through multiple layers of the universe, you go through cycles and, because you have to let go of every intermediate level in order to open to the deeper, the next deeper level. And so there are different ways of suffering in this process. And as a journeyer, you just, you, that's your deal. You know, that's, your, that's the work. That you, you willingly submit to this kind of ordeal. If people do strange things. Mountain climbers submit to all sorts of wild ordeals, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Olympic athletes submit to all sorts of, you know, tremendous physical ordeals. This is just, you know, the nature of the work. But I find that people really get scared when you describe the pain. They get, they get frightened. And, uh, and I found that it's what I'm, I'm happy to have paid the pain. It's a worthwhile cost to pay. I don't mind having paid it. But for someone who doesn't know what you get for that pain, who hasn't experienced the rebirth into the profound joy on the other side of those cycles, they can get scared. And it can reinforce, you know, their cultural stories of hell and punishment. and mm-hmm. It scares them. And I don't want it to scare them. So I don't know yet. I haven't figured out how to balance the story that does have this cycle with scaring people that I don't want to scare because the universe that I've been initiated into over and over in different ways is 
just like the universe you and so many others have been initiated into. It's an extremely loving universe. It's an extremely intelligent universe. It's just intelligent beyond imagination. And harm, any thought of harm to us or to any of its existence is just absolutely impossible. And yet we live in the shadows of this, you know, of this vengeful God and, and, yeah. the, and punishment and all that nonsense. You but see... You see, to go back to language, for instance, mm-hmm. um, I I have experienced. Um, see, I don't have the word for the love, uh, mm-hmm. for this immensity of love that, at the same time, terrified me. Mm-hmm. I mean, my my experience was an an experience of of unbelievable terror. In front mm-hmm. of the, uh, the 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 immensity, I don't have a word for it. The immensity of love. So mm-hmm. perhaps, mm-hmm. yeah, perhaps you could yeah. talk about that, the intersection of terror and and the 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 the, the, the absolute yeah. ecstasy of love. Yes, you describe that particular interface very beautifully, and. You get in many of these kind of deeply paradoxical situations where in order to enter into this absolute ecstatic reality, some larger reality, you have to confront the very deepest fear, some deep, deep level of fear, anxiety, foreboding, terror. Uh, And sometimes those overlap and you're experiencing them both at the same time. Yeah. My experience has been that if you can hold it, if you can sustain that holding in time, the negative will exhaust itself, whatever it is. Mm. Fear, pain, whatever it is, individual or collective, if you can hold it. And sometimes holding it means over months, you know what I mean? More than one session. Yes. It does exhaust itself. And when it exhausts itself, there is a... A, uh, a feeling that comes of, well, of being reborn, but of receiving a grace beyond measure. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. And that that grace remains. I mean... It does remain. It does remain. The it, imprint of it's there, the full intensity, we can't sustain that full intensity, but it does change things deep in our soul. Uh, it, I think it does leave an imprint deep in our soul. Uh, it changes what we live out of. Do you think um, that the fact that uh, the bomb uh, was um, was discovered, I mean, how we could destroy ourselves totally, was discovered in the 40s, and uh, mm-hmm. and Dr. Hoffman becoming aware of um, LSD. Do you think mm-hmm. that uh, that happening at the same time uh, has a significance? Well, I've I've heard your your thinking on this, and yes. I agree with you. I mean, I I can't help but be struck by the deep synchronicity. Yes, of such explosive forces being let loose in the world. 
both of which, I mean, you know, apparently Eisenhower, when he saw the, the video, the film of the first nuclear bomb explosion, what he said was, well, that's that. Here's the man who had just taken us into the largest global conflict, and he knew that with that much power, that was the end of life as we knew it, and as a general, that was going to end war, because he knew that that would escalate into the various gradations of hydrogen bombs and on more and more explosives. So he knew that war, as he had known it, was going to become impossible, and that meant conflict between nation-states weren't going to be able to be resolved like they've been resolved for thousands of years. So in some ways, the nuclear bomb is just such a powerful catalyst for driving us to a different global social order, a transnational social order. Other forces followed. And LSD just shatters the ego so easily the way that uh, the, the nuclear bomb shatters atomic structures. I mean, it just shatters it and That's opens right. us into a different world. Yeah. A world of healing and a world of vision. I, to me, the deeply exciting thing is as a philosopher, I know how we got into the 20th century. I learned the story of our intellectual history. I, I learned the liberation of the patriarchal theologies that science represented. I, I really, I learned the, the, the deep religion of the enlightenment, of, the, of rationality. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. But I also felt deeply, along with all of us, the deep estrangement and alienation. I've lived at the university. The story that's being taught at our colleges is just horrendous. You were an accident. Your life has no meaning, there's no existential significance to your circumstances, and when you die, by the way, it's all gone. That's the best they can come up with. That's a horrendously dark story, and psychedelics shatters that story. It just pulls back the mind and says, oh, that's not what's going on. This is what's going on. There really is a universe behind the physical universe. There really is a generative universe. And... We know from the Big Bang, because everything had to come from that place, but now you can experience it. You can actually experience the extended fabric mm -hmm. of life. It's not a theoretical mm -hmm. point. You can experience it. We can take a thousand PhDs. Give me one year with a thousand PhDs once a month. We can systematically expand horizons, just like doctors have done when they've taken people into near-death episode territory. You know, when they've gotten to the edge of death and then snapped them back, you know, there's extraordinary consistency to their accounts of this reality. But now we don't have to nearly die. We can go through temporary exercises of increased sensitization of consciousness. And we will. That's the wonderful thing. You can't stop this. We can stop it legally for 10 or 20 or 30 years, but this is so true and so powerful, eventually... Eventually, we won't stop it. They can't stop it. And so this, this chemical will help our awakening in a positive way. And I think in some ways, as horrible as it is to think of it, you can see how the bomb has helped us in a positive way too. Yes, yes, it exactly. Exactly. Uh, bottoming out has its place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you take a system and reach it, it reaches a limit. 
I want to take you to a, a paragraph in your book, uh, Dark Night, Early Dawn, which I I particularly resonate with and that uh, has transformative qualities for me. And it's when you say, I was taken back to the primordial beginning before creation and experienced human evolution in the context of a larger cosmic agenda. Suddenly I was overwhelmed by the most extraordinary love, a love unlike anything I had ever encountered before. It was a romantic love, cosmic in scope and intensity. As I stabilized under this amorous assault, I began to remember from deep within my story. Could you take it from there? on that day is that the reality that pre-exists physical existence split itself in some fundamental way. It divided itself. And part of itself moved forward into manifestation, the Big Bang, into diversification and manifestation. And part of itself stayed out, so to speak, of the physical manifestation. Part of it Classically, we've described this as the the mother is the creator and the father is the transcendent consciousness. Sexual role types are very dangerous territory, Mm -hmm. but I do deeply identify with the mother as the creator, generative matrix. At the seat of this division was an extraordinary love. It was a love... It was a love that was about, it was a love that would lead something to separate from her lover for 15 billion years in order to create a physical body. When she came back, she came back to this consciousness and said, this is the universe. We measure it in light years, six million, million years and it's billions and billions of light years across, is this big enough to contain our love? Is this big enough to manifest it? Because the inevitable step was that she was creating the physical form of reality, which of course emerges out of the divine light, where the physicists are showing us and telling us it's all light. And then source consciousness, once this manifest light can evolve to become self-aware, to become self-conscious, and then once it turns within and says, where am I from? What's going on? Who am I? What am I? And that's when the reunion takes place. That's when the manifest being returns consciously to re-embrace the original source being. Mm. And that's what's happening now. Mm. Humanity is that species that is the tip, it's one tip of, I'm sure many, many tips, it is one tip of this self-manifesting of the divine, growing up in awareness, becoming a self-aware, turning and saying, who am I, what am I? And in this sweep, God is knowing God, God is returning to God, the goddess is returning to her beloved, 
Mm-hmm. The intelligence behind the manifestation of the universe in my experience is matched by the love. The love of the desire to share existence, the desire to create abundance. I mean, it's like the desire to create things that will be unfolding for a trillion years. Mm-hmm. That depth of love. Uh, and we're part of that. Mm. And and we will know it. We are in the process of waking up to it. We've been young and stupid. We've been children. We just, we've been so tangled up in our lower emotions. You know, we, we're so tangled up in the three lower chakras. Mm. But we're waking up. You know, the more lives we collect, it's just reincarnation works its purifying magic. It works as building magic thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We can't not wake up. Eventually, all of this life experience that we have tucked inside of us fuses and we become conscious enough to begin to be conscious of the larger totality. And then we return. That's what I think is happening to us now. Well, I want to thank you from the bottom of my soul, Chris, for your expression. And um, thank you, Joanna. Yeah. Now is it, the, uh, sorry. Like you and I have said before we started, we both learn by talking. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I learn by talking, and it. It's a wonderful blessing to have the opportunity just to go free form with somebody who I know appreciates and understands and will connect me to people who understand so that you know the conversation can just get stronger. And I'm still going to ask you, Chris, if um, you would take a moment and... Um, Say what you would like to say to the good people who are listening. What would you like to say in closing? I'd say there's nothing to fear in the, for the years ahead. There's nothing really to fear. And it's going to hurt a great deal. But this is what we came here for. Every one of us, every one of us knew what we were getting into when we incarnated in this century, in this time, in this place. And it's going to break our hearts, rip us open at very deep levels. But if we cooperate with the process, it doesn't have to hurt as much. And if we live the process deeply, if we embrace it, it's going to take us places. And I guess I'd like to close by just offering to share something about the future human, because in the last years of my work, I I was given opportunities, so to speak, to spend time with the future human, what's emerging. And it tended to just 
much in perspective and helped me understand the larger trajectory because this future human that we are all giving birth to is so beautiful. It is just an exquisite being. I mean, honestly, when I, when I sit with the form, it does bring tears to my eyes mm. because our child is so beautiful. A human being with a heart that's healed and open and a mind in deep communion with the intelligence of the universe. And we are, we are the midwives of that being. And all we need to do is live this time in history deeply well, be it skillfully. And this will happen. We will see this thing through. It's my deep conviction. So it speaks for me. Thank you very much again, Joanna. Thank you for this dialogue.